We're good? All right. Well, thank you for coming uh, out to my workshop. My name's Brett Butcher, and uh, my wife, Shannon, is over here. She was one of the musical performers. Um, this is uh, actually maybe my ninth year of going to creation. So uh, it's exciting for me to be here. We have three kids at home. Uh, my youngest uh, is Noel. She's seven. My uh, boy is nine. His name's Owen. And then my oldest, uh, Serena, is 10. And so my kids are uh, really excited um, about being part of kind of a ministry like we are. And so uh, they all have different goals, though, when they grow up. And so my uh, oldest wants to be a vet. And uh, so she loves animals, so being uh, the kind, compassionate father, I'm always showing her those reality vet shows, just so she's kind of like prepared on, on uh, what it's going to be like, and so pulling, you know, a calf out of a mother, and, and uh, a bloating animal, what to do, and, and uh, she's, she's dismissing all that. She says, Dad, I'm just going to work with small animals, okay? They don't have those problems if they're small. You're talking about big ones. My son, he wants to be an actor, um, and so uh, he's uh, really hilarious, I think, for a nine-year-old. And then my youngest, uh, Noelle, she's just like full of spunk. Uh, she wants to be a part-time ballerina, a part-time ice skater, and then a part-time ninja. So I've been looking for ninja schools, if you guys know of any. I haven't seen, maybe Pennsylvania has a really... Uh, a great uh, part for uh, ninja schools, but I don't know. But anyway, um, they're at home. Wish they could be here. My wife's here. Um, but anyway, today we're going to talk from a section of the Bible in Judges. Probably not uh, one of those topics that we're always talking about at creation. But in Judges 6, it has an amazing story of a victory that really is not parallel throughout Scripture. And if you're familiar with Judges, this is the story of Gideon, okay? This is one man who took 300 men and conquered 130,000 soldiers without weapons, okay? Pretty phenomenal. And so when we hear this story about Gideon, we're always like wondering, what is his, you know, was he a great general? Did he have military training? What did God see in Gideon? to make him become this great leader? And the answer is, even Gideon didn't have a clue as to how he was qualified. In fact, he was trying to talk God out of using him. And I think that what's so interesting is a lot of the excuses that Gideon brought up way back then, we still use today. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about Gideon. Let's, it starts out. Here in uh, verse 11, while Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now here's an angel. Gideon doesn't know it's an angel. But right away we understand one thing about Gideon. He's a farmer, but he's a pretty lousy farmer. Okay? Those days you didn't thresh wheat in a hole. The problem is, when you thresh wheat, you throw the chaff up in the air, the wind blows the chaff away, and then the wheat kernels fall down. If you're in a wine press, there's no wind because you're in a hole. 
So Gideon is literally shoveling dirt upon his head over and over again. And God appears to him as the angel of the Lord and calls him a mighty hero. Now, he didn't look anything like a mighty hero. He looked like a coward. And so Gideon, uh, he didn't see himself as very special at this time. Now, one of the interesting things about people is there's a difference. You ask anybody, how many people here, I mean, just asking honestly, how many here uh, want to feel special? I think that's pretty much everybody. A few liars in the crowd, that's okay. But listen, we all want to feel special. The difference is we want to feel special our way, not God's way, okay? I have this thing because I travel. I've been to about 90 countries, and um, I have TSA, a pr you know, pre-check. And uh, the only thing it really does is let me not take off my shoes, okay? But, I mean, you know, for me, it's like a big deal. And so when I get my ticket back, and it doesn't have it on there, I'm kind of like, um, <clears throat> must be a rookie, you know, um, can you check? I'm uh, approved. Well, one time I did that, the guy reprints my ticket, and instead of it saying TSA pre, it said SSS. Now, I didn't know what SSS meant, okay? But I think it means something like special security search, okay? Because they take like an hour they go through all of your luggage. They go through all of your suitcases. They unzip the back lining that you never even checked. They look in there. Um, and it's not a very special thing for people to have that kind of check. We don't like it. I had a friend, Mike, who had a similar thing, only he was in England. And uh, they were running through his back through the machine three or four times they had this TSA officer, I think he was convinced he was Sherlock Holmes. He was going to find that contraband that Mike was hiding. Now, Mike was traveling with a ministry suitcase. First time he'd ever traveled with it. He didn't know what was really inside it except for his clothes. Well, this guy reaches down into the handle. There's a little zipper. Most of us don't notice, but he has this little zipper. He reaches down in this handle. And he pulls this thing out like this is like, you know, a kilo of drugs or something. Aha! And I don't think he looked at it because we looked at it and it was a girl's pink toy phone. Okay? And what made it worse is this thing was a girl's toy flip phone. And so he flips it. And it broadcasts this music that it permeated the entire security area. Everybody was acting like this was the British National Anthem. They're all stopping, looking at Mike. And the phone is broadcasting, My little pony, my little pony. Mike is beat red, and he says, That's not my phone! In front of everybody. Of course, that just fed the TSA guy, right? He's like, I thought you said you packed your bag yourself. It just got worse from there. Finally, they released Mike. Mike's dragging his bag, totally embarrassed after this special search. And uh, the TSA guy had the nerve right as he's walking out. He says, you forgot something. Holds out the pink phone. Mike grabs it, throws it in the trash, and walks out. But listen, 
there's a lot of things that are special. Like when your parents say, I have a special job for you, right? We're like, that's code for like something you don't want to be anywhere near, you know? Like babysitting your brother for 12 hours or something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a special job. Well, when Gideon was given this special job, he had a whole list of excuses as to why God shouldn't use him. And you know, it's interesting to me, that's often the way that a lot of us are when God calls us. I mean, we want to be used by God, right? As a musical artist, as a speaker, as some of these glamorous jobs. And so many people are just thinking that they're convinced. You know, I have a friend who is the head of a homeless ministry, okay? He loves this ministry. Wouldn't, would rather, wouldn't rather do anything else in the world. But, I mean, when you talk to the average person, that's not how they want to be used by God. There's not three-day, $3,000 seminars on how to be a successful homeless ministry, ministry leader, okay? But for him, he is doing God's work, and it's fulfilling him. And he wouldn't be happier doing anything else. You know, when I was a, a teenager, I had the same issue. It was like this trust issue with God. You know, back in my days when, when uh, we were at church, the missionaries would come with these slideshows. Some of you guys remember those, but they didn't have video and things like that. They'd show these slideshows, and, you know, it was like one tribal person after another, and, and uh, you know, this little shanty they live in. And I'm like, the minute God gets a hold of my life, I am going straight to the Amazon, okay? So I was resisting it. I didn't want to, like, eat grubs and, you know, wear a loincloth everywhere. I was convinced that's what God had for my life. And what's kind of funny is I was just at the Amazon basin a couple of months ago, and I'm telling this story, and, you know, those people, have, you know, they're cracking up because they're like, you know, Brett, we don't eat our children here. You know? I mean, you know, they're driving cars just like us. They have cell phones. They have internet. I mean, there's nothing like the perception. And you know, that's kind of the way Satan is, isn't he? He's like trying to convince you that doing God's will is like the worst thing for you. And doing what he wants you to do is all full of fun and, you know, rainbows and unicorns and lollipops and nothing bad happens. And, you know, the truth is it's the opposite. We're the most fulfilled, just like my friend who does this homeless ministry, when we are doing God's will. That's when we find the most joy. And so here we have Gideon's response. God just called him a, a mighty warrior. It's one of those things where God's kind of building up and Gideon's saying, okay, he's got, he's got a special job for me. I need to find my excuses. So Gideon says, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why have all these bad things happened to us? Where are all the miracles that happened to our fathers when they brought him up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us to these Midianites. You know, so many people, we limit how God can use us by our experiences in the past, don't we? Now, we know that Gideon, he had some really traumatic experiences when he um, was living through this era of Midianite occupation. He had three brothers that were publicly executed, we find out later in this book. And so Gideon, you know, he saw the last three people related to him that stuck their necks out. They were murdered, okay? 
And so Gideon had a real good reason to say, God, the last guys that tried that got murdered. You know, you can count me out. And I think for us, it's similar. Not that people are murdered, but Satan always uses those bad experiences in our life to remind us why we're going to fail if we try it again. You know what I'm saying? It's like the guy that leads a Bible study and everybody quits and the guy leaves the church. And next time they ask him to do a Bible study, you know, count me out, you know, uh, or the nursery attendant who, uh, you know, the kids get loose, you know, and they have to have a whole church search party to find the kids. The next time they're asked to do nursery duty, they don't want anything to do with it. And, you know, we have a way of identifying with our experiences, and it's usually our bad experiences. And you know what? God is not limited by that because we all make mistakes. A guy on Turkish Airlines just last um, year, um, the whole plane had to do an emergency landing because the guy named his Wi-Fi network bomb on board, okay? That's a big mistake, right? We've all made huge mistakes that have affected other people. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep our lives open to Christ. Because if we study the story of Gideon, when Gideon responded in obedience, not only did he conquer the Midianites, but he got everything else he could have ever dreamed of. He got wealth, he got influence, he got safety, um, he even had 70 sons, which I think is more of a curse. But in those days, that would have been, you know, real, real blessing. For us, experiences do three things, okay? They can define you, okay? You can be known as the person that was a victim. And every time people talk with you, that's how you identify yourself. You can allow things to destroy you. And I've seen so many destroyed lives because... They've done something wrong or something wrong has happened to them. Or finally, you can allow God to use it to strengthen you. And that's really Gideon. That's what Gideon did after he was convinced. This is what... Oh, wow. Sorry about that. Which one should I use? Both? Just kidding. This one? This one's better? This one's off. Hello? I'll just try to make sure this thing doesn't come off again. How's that? All right. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. The next thing that he identified with was his job, right? He wasn't a mighty warrior. He wasn't a general. This guy was a farmer, and he was a pretty lousy farmer at that. But when God was asking him to be this general, I can imagine him shoveling dirt, scoop after a nuts, saying, life can't get any better than this. This is perfect. It's my favorite job. And God has so much more to life than that. And we see the same thing with so many people. I had this friend in college. You know, he was dating this girl, and it was everybody could tell it was the wrong person for him. You guys all know people like that. He felt trapped in this relationship. And uh, for him, uh, he couldn't see any other way out. And I remember one time he came back. He was my roommate. We had three roommates. He comes back, back to the apartment. And uh, we're like, where's Bethany? And he says, we broke up. 
My roommate Dan says, it's about time. She was the worst. And he says, I'm just joking. Awkward, right? Awkward. But we know a lot of people like that, that have those relationships they feel like they can't get out of, and they're stuck. Well, Gideon was in a job that went nowhere, literally, and, uh, but he was just like so many men, especially, who identify with their work. When I was in T-ball, we used to, um, we had this, this team name, it was called Star Sanitation. Now, I didn't know what sanitation meant, but I thought it was pretty cool that we were named Stars, and the other team was like the insurance company, right? Wasn't until later my parents were like, yeah, you were named after a garbage truck, you know? And, uh, but, you know, we noticed how people even enhance their career fields. Garbage men now are like sanitation engineers, you know what I'm saying? It's because that's part of how they identify. It's so important to them that they identify that way. And here's what Gideon did, he identified with his work. But you know, when we identify with what we do and not who we are, we end up feeling pretty empty, especially if we lose our job. For some men, they just can't handle it because they've identified so much with what they do, there's no life after that. And that's, that's exactly what Gideon was doing. We keep reading on in verse 14. It says, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Okay. So then Gideon responds, oh Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my father's house. A lot of people identify their identity with their family. And sometimes that's not always good. You know, I come from a long line of alcoholics. My wife does as well. I mean, I'm sure at some point she was known as the, the daughter of the alcoholic. And so she could have limited her life to being stuck in that rut that her father and her grandfather and her grandfather after that set forth for her. Well, Gideon's saying, I'm limited. You know, it was interesting a couple years ago, I was at a church in New York City, Times Square Church, and we were talking to somebody there, and he was giving this story about his mother. She was a 15-year-old, developmentally disabled, uh, mentally impaired individual who spent her life in foster care. One day when she was a teenager, she was raped, and the state wanted to get rid of her child. And uh, because of the mix-up and paperwork, she ended up having to carry the child full term. That was this guy. So this guy was born. He never lived with his mom. He spent a lifetime in foster care, going out one house after another, got into drugs, messed up his life entirely until Jesus found him. And you know what happened? When Jesus found him, the Holy Spirit put something on his heart. Go find your mother. So this man, he went through the state and he found out where she lived. And so he did a lot of work ahead of time for this visit so that when he visited, he said, Mom, 
It's, I'm your son. And guess what? I'm not leaving. He took his mom out of the foster home, and now she lives with him. You see, he didn't let his family limit how God could use him. That wasn't his identity, the person that was in the foster home, the son of a rape. He was the son of our holy Christ and Savior. And that's what we need to do when we look at our identity. We can't limit ourselves by where we came from. You also look at your appearance. It's so important, isn't it, today? How you look, especially with the youth, um, spending so much time. I remember, it's not just in the U.S., but when I was in Africa, appearance is everything over there in some areas. I remember one guy, he walks out of a mud hut in a tuxedo that costs more than his house, okay? You talk about how appearance can be important. Literally, it was more, more money than his house, um, and he's wearing it around, all dressed, dapper. But it's important to people, and sometimes we limit how God could use us by the way we look. Whether we're fat, we're short, we're tall, we say, God can't use me. I don't have those looks like the worship pastor. You know the guy with the tight jeans, you know what I'm saying? We can't do that, and, uh, but that's not the way that God, God leads us. He also says he can't do it because his clan is weak. Now listen, for men, this is code for Gideon was saying he was weak. Didn't want to admit it, but he said my clan's weak, right? It's kind of like the guy that you asked to open the jar can't do it. I mean, just tune your ear in on all the excuses they'll have afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Ah, it's too slippery, you know, that kind of thing. The guys hate admitting that they're too weak. And that's the same exact thing with Gideon. I'm too weak to be the general of a huge army. They're going to look at me and say, this guy's not soldier quality. And, uh, but this is what the Lord responded to him. He said, I will be with you and will strike the Midianites as one man. You see, God never asked us to do anything that we're not capable of doing. And he never asked us to do something alone either. God is always going to be with us. And so when Gideon got over these problems with his identity, that's when God chose that he could use him. Now, what happens next with Gideon? Well, he does the whole fleece thing. If you read the story, he's trying to gauge God's will. He becomes convinced in God's first line of duty for him isn't to take the bull, um, isn't to take the army and defeat the Midianites. His first task for him is he says, take your father's bull, his prized possession, the second bull that's seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah pole and then build an altar to me in its place. Okay? Now this is very revealing about Gideon. Okay? Because when you worship false gods, it's a, it's a completely different identity issue. Okay? When God asks us to do something, we make excuses why we can't do it. When we're worshiping false gods, we're trying to convince the false gods why we are acceptable to be blessed by them. Okay? And that's what Gideon was doing. Okay? This was his father's 
idol. This is the town's idol. He was worshiping it. So Gideon, not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? He decides to do it at night where nobody will know what happened, okay? Listen, this is what Gideon did. The thought was in secret, covert operation, if you know what I'm saying. He builds a huge bonfire on a hill, okay? Chops down an enormous tree, chases two full-grown bulls around, and slaughters them, and uses ten men. Can ten men keep a secret? No. So his father finds out about it. The whole town finds out about it, and they want to kill Gideon. And this is the same father who just lost three sons. He doesn't want to lose a fourth. So he says, hey, let Baal contend with Gideon. Okay, if Baal's this big god, let hand him over to Baal. So the town agrees to that, but then they give him a name. What is his name after this? Jeru Baal. Now, you might not know what that means in the Hebrew or Aramaic, okay? But they did back then. And let me tell you what happens back then. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have news. They didn't have fake news, okay? They didn't have anything. Everything was communicated through word of mouth, right? So when Gideon later conquered all the Midianites, back then, when you conquered an army, it wasn't just you versus them. It was their God versus your God, right? And during Gideon's time, the God of the valleys was Baal. So the people in the surrounding you know, countries would have asked, wow, this huge army got defeated. Baal must have had a great victory over the God of Midianites. Who did Baal use for this amazing victory? Then they answered, Jeru Baal, which means Baal's adversary. Okay? Baal's adversary? Baal's using his own adversary to conquer? That doesn't make sense. And it would have took them directly to the Exodus and the God Yahweh that came and conquered the people of the Canaanites. And they would have realized that God did the victory, not Baal. And so there was a purpose to this near-death experience that Gideon had, where everybody wanted him killed. God used that experience for his glory. And that's what he wants to do for all of us. He wants us to use our poor experiences, our bad experiences, the things we hate to remember, okay, for his glory, because that's the way that he shaped us. So what is a correct image? How can we have a correct image? Well, it goes way back to the beginning of Genesis 1, believe it or not. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female. You see, in those days, in those days, they had a lot of images, right? They're images of false gods. And so what they would do is they would build temples and they would put the image of their God in that temple. That represented their God, right? Well, if you go to Solomon's temple or the tent of tabernacle, which, which they had during Gideon's time, what was inside the temple? It was nothing. 
There was nothing in there. There was Ark of Covenant. There was a lampstand. But there was no graven image. Why? Because God's reflection is seen through people living lives for him. Okay? That's why graven images and, and idols are so a counter against God's intuition and his will. So what does that mean? Well, let me tell you a story. In World War II, when the Germans were bombing England, they had very little defense against the Germans. Okay, the Germans would come over and bomb. People would run into the shelters. The only defense they had were some anti-aircraft guns, but they also had fighter planes. And the Spitfire became really their, their last means of defense. So the people in England loved the pilots, the pilot fighter pilots. These guys became heroes throughout England. In fact, they would, they would sign autographs just like the artists backstage here. People and kids really respected these men. One of the problems with the Spitfire, though, was when it was shot down, it would blow up. And the pilots, even if they escaped, would become burned terribly. In fact, they were so terribly burned that British medical system had to devise new methods of grafting skin and treating people that got burned like this. And so they had an entire burn ward where they were just developing new techniques of grafting skin. And uh, if any of you have ever studied medical medicine or, or skin grafting, back then it was pretty gruesome. They would, they would take your skin from one of your appendages and they would have one end attached to your appendage and the one end attached to where you're burned. So if you're on your face, they would, they would attach skin there, they would strap your arm to your face and you'd be sitting there for weeks like this while your skin grew to your face. So it took many, many months. Well, during the course of these months, there was a man, I'll just call him Tom, I don't know what his real name was, but Tom was in this, this unit and every, every day someone would come in to see one of the people in the burn victims. A lot of them were uh, spouses, some of them were girlfriends, some of them were kids. And many times he would hear the shrieks of horror as people saw their loved ones for the very first time. Not recognizable, no nose, no ears, and some of them couldn't handle it. They would leave and never come back. And so Tom watched this, and, and he had a fiance, but she wasn't able to see him at that time because of his surgeries, and they didn't want to contaminate. So he kept ordering new surgeries and new surgeries. And at one point, he was at 30 or 40 different grafts, and finally the doctors told him, they said, Tom, you can't prolong it anymore. You've got to let your fiance see you. And so Tom reluctantly said yes. And he says, when? when? When can she come? And they said, we've already taken care of that. She's coming tomorrow. So you imagine a sleepless night because Tom is worried. He's seen, he's seen all of these burn victims have people never come back after seeing them for the first time. And he's concerned about that. So he's laying in his bed and he hears the, the footsteps of a woman's high heel shoes, right? And he can't bear it. So he puts his 
his, his face to the wall. He feels a little, little tug on his hand. And he looks up and he sees his fiance. His fiance said, I can't bear. I can't bear. And he's about ready to just lose it because he thinks this is it. She says, I can't bear to be apart from you even one more day. And of course, that changed everything, didn't it? She says, I got to get married to you and we got to do it tomorrow. And of course, he's still in the bed and, you know, it's got skin grafts going on. And, and so the next day, they have a makeshift wedding right there in the hospital. Now, I imagine there were a few nurses like trying to see who's going to be, you know, the maid of honor and, and that kind of thing. I'm sure it was just a spectacle. But they got married and Tom got out of the hospital and became one of the greatest lawyers in England after that. But it didn't stop there. Tom still felt the shame every day as he walked to work and walked to the subway. Kids would laugh. Girls would scream. Mothers would hide their babies' faces from looking at this horrifying sight. And one day, as Tom was walking, he had this habit. He didn't want to offend anybody, so he would, he would turn his head down like this to just spare everybody the, 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 just the, the shock of seeing his face. Well, his wife was walking with him one time when that happened. And she reached down and she grabbed his hand. And she said, Tom, look at me. And so when Tom looked at her and he saw those eyes of love, all the shame, the embarrassment, the pain was washed away by love, acceptance, and the embrace of someone that loved him. You see, that's what we need to do when we struggle with our identity. When we don't know our role in this world, we need to look to Christ for our affirmation. We need to look to Christ and see how he sees us, not how we see ourselves. And that's really difficult for us to train ourselves. About 10 years ago, I was in the country of Sudan. And while I was there, I was just really touched by a group of, of uh, children. They were part of the lost, they call them the lost or the invisible children, okay? These were children that were were taken out of their homes at night and forced to serve in this terrible terrorist army. Okay, this was just the worst. They made him do unspeakable things. Well, a couple years later, the war was over. And so these children, you can imagine, being so excited to go back home and see their brothers and sisters and their family. The problem was that many of these children, when they came back, their families stopped them at the door and said, you're not welcome. You're not welcome. We know the things that you did. We know the atrocities you were part of, and we can't allow that to be in our house. We had young girls who had babies, and they were the, the result of, of forced weddings with terrorist leaders. And some of the girls were, were told, you can come back as long as you leave the baby on the side of the road. What a choice to have to make, right? Well, these kids ended up being on the street 
They ended up being in drugs. They ended up being in prostitution. There was a young lady who was from America who came into the scene and she was moved by the spirit of the Lord, just like Gideon, just like this person that worked with the homeless people. She was moved and she said, I got to do something. I don't know what, I don't have any money. So she began to welcome these kids into her home. And she could handle a couple, two, three, four. It grew to 150 children, okay? 150 children. And so she began to teach them about their heavenly father because their earthly fathers had all left. They'd all left. And how their heavenly father loved them. And that they were orphans, they were part of a family. And she was the mother, God was their father. Well, that was, that was, that was great as these kids. And I saw some of them just out of these rebel um, armies. I mean, just like a week or two. And you could see the difference. They were just, you know, completely void of emotions. In a couple months, they're just vibrant kids as God healed a lot of these wounds. But these kids still had a hard time because everybody knew who they were. So one day they came to, to Jenny, who ran um, the family, and they said, you know what, we've been playing soccer with the other schools, and we realized we got a problem. We've cleared the jungle, we've made makeshifts goalposts out of wood, but when we play the other schools, they have shoes and we don't. And we get stepped on all the time. It's not really working too well for us. And so they said, we need some shoes. Now, Jenny gave these kids one set of clothing a year on Christmas Day. That's all she could afford. And so when they were asking for shoes, she did the only thing she could. She said, you know, I don't have money for shoes, but your heavenly father loves you and he owns everything in this world. Let's pray to him and see if he'll bring some shoes. So the kids thought, well, that's a great idea. They're just learning to pray. So they start praying. And uh, of course, the next morning they run up and, Jenny, where are the shoes at? You know, and she's like, you know, it's, it doesn't work that way. God uses his own timing. It's not always our timing. So you can imagine these kids, every truck that drives in to the, the center there, um, chasing it, seeing if there's shoes in it. After a couple months, they were very discouraged, very discouraged. And she encouraged them, keep bringing things to your heavenly father. He loves you so much. And so these kids continued for a year and a half, praying for shoes. Well, what Jenny didn't know is way back in the United States, we were getting ready to go to Sudan. And uh, a month before, a friend of mine called me up and he says, hey, I got some donations for your trip. Know you guys do some great things overseas and, and uh, I'm just gonna drop them off. And so I said, all right, told him where the loading zone was. He loaded it back there and I actually completely forgot about it. A Couple weeks before the trip, I told my office manager, I said, yeah, we got a couple extra suitcases. Why don't you go ahead and load them up? And I said, oh, I think, uh, I think Mike brought some, uh, some boxes of supplies. Why don't you load them up in there? So she starts loading these suitcases and she calls me on the intercom. She says, Brett, have you seen what's in these, these boxes? And I said, no, I haven't even, I haven't had time. And she says, well, you need to come over here. And so I walk over there 
in these boxes that are about this high, two of them, they were full of football cleats or soccer cleats. And I'm thinking, what in the world are these people in Africa going to do with these shoes? Maybe they can cut off the cleats. I don't know. And so I said, just keep them in those, those uh, the suitcases. We'll take them anyway. Well, that was right before I met this lady at the border who was telling me this story about her kids. And so I said, you know what, Jenny? I said, I've got two suitcases full of shoes, and I think God answered your prayer through us. And so she took these shoes, and she blessed these children of our father with these shoes. And I said, Jenny, you got you to know one thing about these shoes. She said, I said, these aren't any ordinary shoes. The, my friend Eric, he works for Nike. And these shoes are prototypes that they were testing with the very best professionals in the world. Ronaldo and some of these others. I said, these shoes aren't just regular shoes. These are the best shoes in the world. They sell on eBay for six, seven hundred dollars. I mean, they're, they're, they're prized possessions. And I said, God loved your children so much. He didn't just answer their prayer with any shoes from the store. He gave them the very best. You know, for us, when we look at ourselves and our lives, we often wonder, what does God think of us? Well, for these kids, people around them, they call them prisoners. But God has set them free, according to John 8. People of this world, they called those kids murderers. But God called them forgiven. People of their village called them damaged goods. But in 2 Corinthians, God says we're a new creation. The people around them called them wounded. But in 1 Peter 2, 24, God says we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. People around him called him rejected, but in 1 Peter 1.18, God called them redeemed. You see, people in this world, they called them orphans, but in John 1.10, God called them his children. You see, that's how God sees us. God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ as being redeemed and be empowered to serve him. I'm going to wrap it up with one final verse. We all know that Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for the good, for those that called according to his purpose. Now, most of us know that verse. What mo a lot of us don't know is the second part of the verse, though, in verse 29. It says, for those he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, he takes all those bad experiences that we've had, all of our past, all of the trials, and he conforms those so that we can be a better representation of his image. I'm going to close with this story. A couple uh, months ago, my kids were uh, in the car with me right around Christmas, and we're driving under an overpass, an underpass, and, or overpass, because we're driving under the overpass, and uh, they saw a homeless family. And it's in December, and they had blankets and signs and were on cardboard. And, and my daughter, Noelle, the one that wants to be the ninja, right? She's like, Dad, do they have Christmas? In the, you know, under the overpass? 
I said, I, I don't know. I said, I don't, I don't think they have Christmas. She said, well, that's, that's really sad that there's people that don't have Christmas. She said, can we bring Christmas to them? And I said, well, I, I don't know about that. That'd kind of be hard to estimate. I'm kind of an analyst. So I'm thinking like, you know, how many turkey per homeless person that shows up? And, and uh, so they had all these ideas, my son and, and my daughter and their brainstorm, and they come up with all these different ideas and ends up, you know, they had a bunch of ideas, ends up, they printed out verses and put them on candy canes and, uh, and we took them to the mission and they handed them out to the different men in the, in the mission. And uh, it was kind of funny because I was reading the verses my kids decided to print out. One of them was Jesus wept. I thought, that's kind of an odd, odd thing for a Christmas candy cane is Jesus wept. But they, they were in charge. I let them be in charge. Well, a couple months later, I wanted to fuel this, this passion, this calling in their lives. And so I have a friend named Matt and a friend um, named Josh who have that ministry I was talking about to homeless people. And uh, Josh, he actually served, he actually was homeless. He, he, was, uh, he was a collection agent for a dope dealer, okay? And so when people didn't, uh, they didn't pay, right? Matt would go to their door and nicely give them the 30-day warning and, and then the 60-day and then, you know, no, he wouldn't do that. He'd actually, like, rough them up pretty bad because he's a big guy. And that's how he got his dope. So that's what he did for years. And he slept on the street, collected for dope. Then the Lord got a hold of his life. And uh, instead of dealing dope, uh, he has a ministry called Hope, Hope Dealers. Okay? He walks around with a shirt called Hope Dealers. And everybody's like doing this you know, double take. Like, you know, you're actually advertising, you're selling. You know, I thought maybe, you know, Oregon laws are not that liberal, you know. But uh, it says Hope Dealer. His friend, Josh, he used to be the head of the, the most dangerous gang on the West Coast, okay? Josh has tattoos on him that will literally give any kid nightmares, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they're just like the worst. And, uh, and so what do you do when you have a bunch of like tattoos like that? You can't use that laser treatment because it'd basically burn a hole right through him because he has so many, right? So... What, what my friend Josh did is he got twice as many tattoos that glorified Jesus Christ. So he's got the demons here, and he's got the angels here. He's got the verses. He's got hope dealer around his neck. I mean, he's a real rough character. In fact, uh, he was telling me a couple of months ago, he was like trying to help this girl. Um, you know, she drops something out of her backpack. He picks up to give, her, give it to her. She screams and runs away. And, you know, he's like, what's going on? And his, his wife, who's very sensitive like me, right? She says, have you looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> what a thing a wife can say, right? So he's like, yeah, I, I looked in the mirror and I actually I kind of scared myself a little bit. So I had Matt and Josh come over to our house for dinner, right? With my kids. And so I'm kind of prepping them. And I said, you know, Josh, he kind of, he used to be in a gang, but he's, you know, a Christian now. So he's okay. And my oldest daughter says, Dad, I think he's still in a gang. I'm pretty sure. I'm like, no, 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 no. He's saved. He's got those tattoos from before, but he's, he's, a, he's a Christian. And so they had dinner with my kids and my family. And um, I was, this was one of those holy moments, you know what I'm saying? 
that I set up because I wanted, I wanted to see something. So I started throwing these softball questions to my kids in front of these two people that work with homeless. And so I said, yeah, didn't you two do something? Didn't you do, uh, my two youngest, I said, didn't you do something to help the homeless a couple months ago? And my daughter beams and she starts talking about giving these, these candy canes. And, and uh, it was really interesting what happened. I look over at this, this you know, gangster and this collect, dope collection agent, agent, you know, big guys, tattoos, and they're getting emotional talking to this little seven-year-old kid. And Matt says, you know what, Noel? You don't realize how rare that is, what you did for those kids. You, you touched, not those kids, those people. He said, you touched their lives in a way they'll never forget. And you could just see that affirmation just fill my two kids as a result of that. And it touched these two men as well because it just wasn't the normal thing. He said, most homeless people, they don't, people act like they're not even there. They'll never look at them. They won't talk to them. And he says, sometimes the nicest thing I can do is just hug somebody because it just says, hey, you, you admit I'm here. You recognize I'm here. I'm a, I'm a child of, of God. And so you see what happened here is that they both, just like Romans 8.28, they used the things in the past to conform their image to Christ, and they ministered to one another as a result. And you know what? That's what Gideon did. He finally gave up. He finally said, God, here I am. Use me. I'm getting rid of these false idols, and I'm giving myself to Christ. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, we see through a mirror dimly, but soon we will see face to face. And when we're living our lives for Jesus Christ, and we are, have the true identity of Christ that's shining through us, we're still a dim image because we're not Jesus. But the Bible promises that one day, one day we will see him face to face as a result. So I'm going to pray and uh, let some worship team on here. But uh, we're going to be up there at the uh, merch tent later on. I wear a bracelet, uh, a little uh, band, bracelets for girls. I think there's a band. Um, it says activateme.org. And this is what we, our ministry has with Reed Saunders. Um, we wrote a book called Activate. And this is basically um, about the Romans road. It's the eight verses in Romans that we can use to share our faith. So when we have this band on, it's real easy. People see it and they say, what's that all about? And I, I can share the salvation message really quick. And it's like, that's about eight verses. Really? And it also helps you memorize them. And so it's a really cool thing. So we got those up on the tent. Hope to see you up there. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for giving us the story of Gideon and the amazing things that he did uh, once he gave his life to you. And once he used that correct identity that only can be reflected as he reflects Christ. He's not, he's not the light source. He's just a reflection of it. And I know that all of us, we have, we're the king of excuses. We really are. But once we submit ourselves to you, you can do amazing things in our life. Thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen.